I don't have to tell any of you in this room that the landscape of our culture is shifting and in many ways has shifted. Uh, Christians on so many fronts recognize that uh, we find ourselves in many regards uh, not on the majority side of public opinion. Uh, whether we're talking about issues of human dignity or religious liberty or matters of sexual ethics and otherwise, uh, we often find ourselves in a minority these days. And it's a difficult thing for uh, someone who has experienced what it's like to be more mainstream and to be on the accepted center of a culture to have gone nowhere but to have found the culture to have gone somewhere without you. It's easier to go somewhere yourself, like a foreign country, and recognize, okay, things are different here, and uh, the experiences are different here, and I should expect different things here. But it's one thing to go nowhere and have the world change around you. It's very much a different kind of feeling. And because of it, many Christians in our day and time wonder how should we respond to such changes. How do we engage the culture faithfully so that we don't re retreat in an unhealthy, unfaithful, biblical way, but that we don't also become enmeshed, uh, captured up into, and completely indistinguishable from the culture in which we are? We use the phrase being in the world but not of the world. What does that mean? How do we do that? Uh, what, what would it look like now to both faithfully live and display with our lives a witness-bearing commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? And to do so in a way that's not angry or so grief-stricken that it's despairing, but one that's full of hope and love and winsomeness, that's longing to show the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to neighbor and to a wider watching culture. In many ways, we're asking the question as we approach a passage like Acts 17, what does it take for Christians to be culturally discerning, uh, even, uh, even um, wise to the degree that they understand that they must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, and yet simultaneously be loving Gospel-sharing, disciple-making committed. Now, Russell Moore, in his book, Onward, which some of you have read, I've engaged with a few of you about it, I mentioned it in the pastoral notes this morning, says that this shift in culture for many Christians is so disillusioning that they're unsure what to do, but he argues it actually poses for us not an obstacle but an opportunity. A way in which to make Christ known in a fresh way, maybe in a way that couldn't be seen in the uneasy alliance that was sometimes forged between social Christianity and American values that are no longer um, happy bedfellows, shall we say. 
He said that maybe is not so much of an obstacle as it is an opportunity, a way in which we can make Christ known in a fresh way that's distinguishable from the nation or from family tradition or history. God might be pleased to actually, as he notes in the book, save us from ourselves through the changes that are taking place. Now, Paul, I believe here in Acts 17, is, though not in 21st century America, he's in a culture that's pluralistic, like our own. He's in a culture that was actually described here in a verse that we're going to read in a second, one that's always interested in something new. That could probably be said of us. There's a lot about this Greek culture in the first century that has overlap and connecting with the time in which we live, and that's why I think it deserves the kind of attention I want to give it, for us to sit in for a few weeks and to say, what did Paul do here? What did he focus on? What did he say, and how did he say it? What did he think was important? And what can we glean for what it means to be a a culturally savvy, gospel-sharing, committed disciple-maker of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 21st century in North America? There are really three things, before even we read this passage, that I'd love for you to just have in your heart as we look at these verses together. Because I think there are three things in this passage that are really critical for us in the time in which we live, in any time, but I think maybe even specifically in the time in which we live. And I think the first of these is that we should be a people who are able to spot and expose cultural idols. We're going to focus in upon that particular discipline today. What does it mean to spot and expose cultural idols. A Christian must have a mind for that. We're calling it a mind for discipleship today. But I think secondly, a Christian must learn to use cultural capital in order to build gospel bridges. He or she, a Christian, must learn to use cultural capital. What the culture's giving you, what it's showing you, what it's displaying to you, be able to use that capital in a way that connects bridges to the gospel. Easier said than done, but we're going to look at it together. And then thirdly, we have to learn to communicate a gospel that's culturally compelling and catch this, and subversive. Uh, Meaning that it's winsome and attractive to the culture by what it claims and asserts, but it's also subversive in that it undermines the idols of the culture. It kind of knocks the knees out of the things in which we tend to worship day in and day out. So we need to learn to spot and expose cultural idols. We need to learn to use cultural capital in order to build gospel bridges. But then thirdly, we need to communicate the gospel in a culturally compelling and even subversive way. Now, we won't be able to get to all of that today. Don't get worried. Don't get worried. I won't talk forever. I promise. I promise. I do want to talk, however, about spotting and exposing cultural idols because I think that's where it begins. And so as we look at Acts 17 this morning, I want you to see that's Paul's game as he comes to share the gospel. He wants to expose the cultural idols of Athens, and then he's going to use those idols against Athens 
because he's going to conspire to bless them in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for the sake of time, I'm actually I'm going to read the whole passage this morning. I'm actually going to look just through verse 23 of Acts 17. So we're going to start in Acts 17, verse 16, and then I'm going to read to verse 23, and then we'll pause. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. This is God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we take a few minutes now and simply submit ourselves to your word, we would ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit, that he would come with light and with clarity, that he would come with power and with transformation, that he would come to teach us about you. And would show us the glory of Jesus and equip us with the skill of being disciple makers in the generation in which you have placed us. Father, that's an order far too tall for any man. But it's nothing for your spirit to accomplish. So come, send him to us that we might know who it is we are, what it is we are to be, and answer your call upon our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can tell from the title of today's message, I want to focus on a mind for discipleship. Uh, what does it mean to have a directedness of mind towards seeing what needs to be seen in a culture in order to understand what's at its center and that giving shape to what it is that we ought to be and to do. So I want to help identify and expose today the idols of our own culture by way of application but do it by looking at the Apostle Paul as he does it here in the Athenian culture, and to see how it is that he goes about it. So how is it that the Apostle Paul, when he looks and engages with culture, what does he do? What's he think about? Where's his focus? Uh, 
And how does he make Christ known in and through those things? Well, I want to look at three things with you from these few verses. And we're actually just going to look at a few verses within the verses that we read. But the first thing I want you to see that the Apostle Paul does is he takes time to observe the culture. He takes time to observe the culture. If you look with me in verse 16, you'll see that he says that, that as Luke writes to us the account of Paul's ministry here in Athens, we're told that Paul saw that the city was full of idols. In verse 23, we're told that he observed, as he's walking through the Greek agora, the marketplace, he observed, we're told, the objects of their worship. In verse 22, as he begins his preaching there in Athens, men of Athens, I perceive. He had seen something and he had drawn a conclusion from that thing. He had perceived that in every way they were religious. The Apostle Paul took time as he entered into Athens to observe the culture. He wanted to take it in. Uh, not as a, simply as a tourist, but as a Christian. He, he wanted to take it in and process what the culture was saying through what it was prioritizing. What was it communicating by the way in which it was conducted? Now, when we go into a new culture, we have a tendency to do this. When we're visiting another country, our attentions are sparked, we're awake, we're alert in ways that we often aren't when we're in our own culture. In fact, when we're in our own culture, don't we often fall into the opposite of what we see the Apostle Paul here? We fall into a thoughtless absorption of that which is around us. This is the easiest thing to do. In fact, if you don't cultivate the discipline of attentive observation of culture, you will by necessity drift into and absorb the culture. It will happen. It's the default movement of one's heart. We will begin to take up the narratives of the culture, the way the culture explains things, the thought patterns, the practices, the interests, and the priorities. And if we don't pause to really consider, wait, what are we doing? What is this saying? Is this right? Is this in line with the will of God? Does the Bible actually speak in this way? Then we will, by definition, by default, be sucked up into and absorb thoughtlessly the culture. Uh, the Apostle Paul we see here is progressive in the way that he engages with the culture. He sees it in a general way empirically, but we're told he observes it, that is he carefully considered it. Then he perceives something about it, that means he drew a conclusion. He, was, he didn't check his mind at the door when he was watching a movie. He didn't check his mind at the door when he was reading the latest New York Times bestseller. When he was engaging with business associates. Uh, the Apostle Paul was walking around and he had an eye to the observation of culture. To process it, to think through it, to consider it. In a way that he could perceive what was really the center of it. What was running it. You see as he observes culture. As he processes the information. As he perceives it. As you see later there in verse 22. 
it begins to inform the way he communicates to the culture. And we're going to talk about that later, how to communicate from the capital that the culture gives us. But the Apostle Paul, he notes that he sees an unknown God. He notes something about the religiosity of this culture, and he uses it as a bridge to the gospel. I think it's really critical. It's really important to understand. He, he's doing this not merely to be erudite, to be, to be of high culture. He doesn't just simply want to say, you know, I read the New Yorker and the Atlantic Monthly, and I've, I've, I've listened to those um, pundits of high culture in our day, and I'm aware of the latest thing that's there as if to be simply educated. No, that's not the Apostle Paul's point. He wants to know what is there in order to make Christ known so that disciples can be made. He has an eye to the observation and processing it in that way. Which leads to our second point. We have to be observers of culture. We have to take time to do so, carefully considering, perceiving, drawing conclusions from, because the focus of our observation is this. We must identify the idolatrous heart of the culture. What is the idolatrous heart of the culture? What's it really running on? Now, it's so obvious in the text that we can run past it. (laughs) The Apostle Paul says he saw that the city was what? Full of idols. What did he observe? The objects of their worship. What did he perceive? They were very religious. The Apostle Paul wasn't simply walking around to say, Wow, I, I see that you eat well. You have beautiful buildings. You have an amazing coastline. I like these things. He wasn't simply engaging with the culture at a surface level, preferential to his own personal sensibilities. He was engaging with the culture and watching and looking for what was its God at its very center. What caught his attention was idols. Now I can say with actually um, some authority, because I've been to Athens now, that there are are idols in Athens. Still today, all over the place. Temples, idols, statues... They're everywhere. Now, there there are only a a few in comparison to the time in which Paul was there, which which means that you might kind of say, well, of course, he saw idols. I mean, that's what we think of when we go to Athens as we see statues. But I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the point of the text. The point of the text is that Paul had his eyes peeled for what had captured the heart of the culture. It wasn't that, oh, yeah, I just saw a bunch of idols. He had his his heart, his eyes directed towards what's really capturing the heart of this culture. Every culture, every city, every location has a systemic idol, some idolatrous heart. And if a Christian wants to share the gospel in a compelling and relevant way, it's important that he or she knows the ways in which this particular culture is idolatrous and thus needs to hear the gospel connecting those two. Uh, let, let me just do a little case and study, kind of a uh, kind of a lab for a second, on on how to do this. Uh, not from just our own culture, but from the Bible itself. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn over just a couple of pages to Acts 19, because you see the Apostle Paul do it in in a significant way there. Just hold your your finger there right now, because we're kind of come to it in just a second with Ephesus. 
Because you see the Apostle Paul puts his finger there in Ephesus on an idol and some bad stuff begins to happen when he does that. And we should not be surprised by that. But I want you to see from, uh, from Acts 17 how the Apostle Paul was processing and then I want you to just shift over to Acts 19 so you can see it illustrated. You wouldn't know this from simply reading in your Greek in your English Bible, but in the Greek text, in verse 16, that word saw is not the typical word for saw. It's the word theorontos, from really where we get the word theater. Uh, it means in order to gaze at something, in order to understand it, to contemplate it, in order to get its, its perfect, its, its purpose. And theater is really important in, in Greek culture, and that's probably why Luke actually uses that language um, here in, in Acts 17. Many of you remember from your studies, Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides and the classic playwrights. And, and if you know something about Greek um, culture, it's similar to theater, say, in New York City at this level, that it's not merely for entertainment, though there's that quality to it. Theater was also a place where ideas could be illustrated, advanced, where philosophical concepts could be put on display. It was a place where, uh, where wisdom could be sought. I was reading actually a thespian uh, scholar uh, this week who said the theater is the place where the meaning of life, both in its tragic and comic elements, can be discovered. Uh, in a very real sense, this idea of theater is what's happening as the Apostle Paul walks through life, this theorontos. He's seeing, as he walks through the business district, as he walks through the religious temples, as he sees the academies and engages with the philosophers, you know what he's in? He's in a theater. He sees it as a theater. He's gone, to, it's, everything's putting on display, and what it's putting on display is what it actually believes, what it thinks, how it functions, what it's motivated by. Uh, Henry Van Til was a Dutchman, a longtime professor at Calvin College who wrote a fairly influential book at the end of the 1950s entitled The Calvinistic Concept of Culture. He defined culture this way. He said, culture is lived religion. Or more popularly, culture is your religion externalized. It's what you really hold dear. It's what a community holds and cherishes most dear. It necessarily expressed in the things that it does. Van Til argued that there is some fundamental commitment that's at the very center of every culture. And that fundamental commitment... That place of supreme devotion, whatever it is, gives shape to the culture and how it functions. That God, if you will, will necessarily wield the greatest influence on the form and the direction that that culture takes. Now that's why I've got your finger in Acts 19. You see, in Acts 19, after the Apostle Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and then left Corinth and went to Ephesus... And in Ephesus, he had an incredibly successful ministry. We're actually told that in verse 20. We're told that the word of the Lord prevailed mightily in Acts 19, verse 20. But right after we read those words, something really fascinating happens. A riot breaks out in Ephesus. Why does a riot break out? We're told that the word of God's been prevailing mightily. We might expect peace. <laughs> we might expect happiness and joy to ensue but what actually happens in the culture is a riot breaks out 
Now, why does this happen? Well, let me give you the short answer, and then we'll unpack it. The short answer is this. Paul, in the preaching of the gospel, exposed and dethroned the idol of Ephesus, and everyone who was not a follower of Christ was incited to anger because of it. Let me show you how it, how it worked. In verse 24 in the text, we are introduced to this man, Demetrius. He, he's a man who makes idols. He's a craftsman. He's a silversmith. And he's noticed a decline in his business. He actually begins in the next verse saying, Men, you know that from this business, this idol-making business in Ephesus, we have our wealth. And you can see and hear that only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has come and he's persuaded people to turn away a great many people, saying that gods are not made with human hands. And so there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and be deposed. He gives this rhetorical speech he's up in arms and we see that the people begin to be very excited and run around in the city confused inciting a riot now just step back from the text for a second what's really going on well a superficial reading of the text would say this guy's really upset that artemis the greek uh, the greek goddess who is the goddess of hunters. So those of you who are looking forward to hunting season, uh, you, you would traditionally pray to Artemis if you wanted a successful kill. You're looking to go for, out for a successful kill. Artemis would be who you would pray to, you would sacrifice to, you would seek to appease. Um, you could look at the passage and you could say, they're really upset that Artemis is now being neglected because of this Jesus Christ who the Apostle Paul is preaching. But that's not really the idol of the culture, is it? There's really something more fundamental. In fact, I would argue that if Paul had preached a gospel that said, you can be followers of Jesus and Artemis, and Artemis, if you could just add Jesus in to the pantheon of gods, remember the Greeks were pluralists, they were more than happy to add in other gods if it meant that they could possibly get more things or better things and appease more gods. It wasn't exactly, though, the issue of adding in Jesus. It was the... It was the effect that it was having on their pocketbook. Because they had believed in Jesus, the culture quit buying idols at the same level. Which meant that the craftsmen and the silversmiths weren't making as much money. Which meant they were mad. Hey, bring your Jesus along with Artemis, that's fine, but don't take away my money. You see, there's always in a culture what may be the professed idol, the visible idol, but then there is this thing, this thing that we might call the idol underneath the idol, the idol of money here in Ephesus. Now, this is very true for our own context and time and space. Um, Bring in whatever you want to bring and add more ways to heaven that you'd like to add. But if you become exclusive or cramp my style regarding it, if you in any way take a, it has an effect that costs me something, well, I just might come up in arms about it. You see, there's a number of different ways to uncover an idol in a culture, but one of the surefire ways to uncover one is pay attention to what the culture gets really, really mad about. <laughs> What's it get really, really mad about? 
Listen, if you see a riot taking place and violence in the street, you can rest assured that underneath that outrage is some sacred cow, some idol that's wrapped up around an identity of who we are as a people, and it's being threatened, and the people have come out of the woodwork to defend it. Now, not all social outrage is bad. Uh, there are things that should and do very deeply bother us. And we feel, we might say, as I think this passage gives us, a holy indignation for seeing evil run amok in the world. And we have an example, I believe, here in Acts 17 of the kind of outrage that a Christian displays. The kind of outrage that a Christian should feel. Because alongside the taking time to culturally observe, identify the cultural idols, the third thing that actually must happen in our hearts is that we must be provoked in the spirit to share the gospel. Provoked is the word that's used here. Look at it there in verse 16. After Paul saw that the uh, city was full of idols, after he'd observed the objects of their worship, we're told that his spirit was provoked within him. This is provoked by the culture's need. Provoked by the culture's need for the gospel. John Stott in his commentary on, on this particular passage says, The reason we can't speak the way that the Apostle Paul speaks is because we can't see what the Apostle Paul sees, namely the idols, and we don't feel what the Apostle Paul feels. See, when we hear that word provoke, we've got to begin to dig into that word. What does it mean to be provoked by a city that's full of idols? Because, friends, you live in a city that's full of idols. Right? We know that intellectually. But are you provoked in spirit? That's the question that the text is raising. Are you provoked in spirit? What does it mean to be provoked in spirit? Because we tend to think provoked in spirit and we think in negative terms, don't we? You think of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not <laughs> provoke, same word, your children to wrath or to anger. In this case, this is bad. There's a bad provoking. But we can be provoked, can't we, in a good way? And we're often provoked in a good way. We're provoked, in other words, to help people. Some of you have recently contacted me about reputable organizations and churches that you can give funds to in Houston, Texas, following the disaster of Hurricane Harvey. Even as we gather this morning, many more of us will be provoked after Hurricane Irma destroys so much of beautiful Florida and the surrounding areas. And I pray that something of a provocation, a provoking, happens within your own heart with regards to what you see how you perceive what it is that's going on. Now, this happens in a moment like that where it might cause us to generosity or build a team with chainsaws and go down and help. There might be all kinds of provocations that might arise from a moment like that, but it happens often when we see injustices in the world or tragedies that take place in the world. How many of you, like me, have been so deeply troubled by the recent rash of racially charged violence? That we've seen in our country. Grieved with a mix of anger. Longing to see the world made right. 
I found myself conversing with others, saying, what can we do? What's the role that we should play? How should we speak? What would the Lord require of us? Those are the kinds of questions. Those feelings get so strong at times that wouldn't we say we would feel disobedient if we didn't do something? If we remained silent? And when we feel those things, what's actually happening is our heart is beginning to be engaged. Our mind and our will and emotions is, co is coalescing. It's coming together around a particular issue and we become provoked in spirit. Now here's what's interesting. What provokes the Apostle Paul's spirit? Hurricane relief? That's important, friends. Physical life and buildings are important, but there is something far deeper of importance that the Apostle Paul sees. Far deeper. He sees a spiritual disaster in Athens. He's walking around the most beautiful of buildings in the most glorious and progressive and advanced cities, and he sees moral and spiritual bankruptcy. That's what he sees. He is provoked in spirit, not because he goes, wow, look at the Parthenon. It's amazing. He thinks they spent all of their time and their money and their energy to serve an idol that's dead that will ultimately lead them to condemnation. That's what he sees. He's provoked. He's provoked in spirit. Now, that word provoked is a very, very difficult word to translate. It actually is a medical term. Or often used, we should say, in the field of medicine. It means to, to shake, almost to have a seizure-like experience. Meaning to say, I believe, the strength of what the Apostle Paul experienced there in Athens was that he quivered with provocation. He had a kind of adumbration, a rumble, that kind of ran through him. As it spiritually dawned on him, the devastating nature of the bankruptcy that was happening spiritually in Athens. He, he had to do something because of it. Now the word used throughout the Old Testament in reference to God. God often talks about being provoked to anger with regards to the people of Israel's sin. Now there is something of that in this terminology that's actually here. Because I think there's actually, if we could identify, if I could... If I could take a moment to sort of drill down into this word provocation, what's, what's the emotional temperature of the Apostle Paul as he's seeing these idols, he's spotting these idols, he's observing and perceiving the problem in the culture of Athens, he's preparing to go preach and teach a compelling gospel message in this place, he's given himself over to this. What, what emotions is the Apostle Paul feeling in this provoke? Well, I think there are three. I think he's feeling, first of all, what we would call a righteous anger, a kind of indignation. I want you to remember that this is an appropriate response for the Christian in light of seeing God's glory robbed from him. It's an appropriate response. There is something of a holy indignation that's there for the Apostle Paul. He so longs for the created order 
and everything within it to be utterly committed to the worship and the glory of God for that is the chief end for which everything is made. That was the passionate center of the Apostle Paul. When he saw everywhere that people were serving the creature rather than the creator, it actually, it actually rose up, it stirred up within him something of a holy indignation. Now some of us may go, mm, that doesn't sound right. Well, I give you Jesus in the temple. Uh, Jesus, when he has walks into the temple for that very first time, seeing the money changers in the temple, turning the temple, a place of prayer, into a den of thieves. And in that moment, the Jesus Christ, meek and mild, turns over tables and we're told runs out people with whips. Because he saw how sin had infiltrated the religious center of Jerusalem, a place that was supposed to be committed to God. But now they had turned the worship of God into the worship of themselves. And Jesus knew it was time to clean house. Now there's something of that spirit, of that holy indignation, that's actually appropriate to the life of the Christian. If we have no outrage at all, we're not alive, friends, spiritually. We're not alive. We certainly are not reflective of the spirit of our God as he's revealed in the Bible concerning these things. But this provocation, this holy indignation, this righteous anger, in your anger do not sin, we're told, in the scriptures, is tethered to two other deep and profound emotions, and one of them is grief. The second thing we see in this language of provocation is the reality of grief. When we see some great injustice that's done and we're provoked by it, what begins to happen? Our hearts are broken. A sadness overtakes us. This is what happened when Jesus showed up at the grave of Lazarus. It's one of the most moving moments in all of the Gospels. His dear friend has died. His sisters Mary and Martha are beside themselves coming to Jesus. And in the moment where they express, Jesus, if you had been there, our brother would have lived. And we're told that Jesus in that moment breaks down. He weeps. He becomes totally overcome with grief and tears begin to roll down his cheek. He was provoked into the pervasive sadness of what this scene displayed before him. This anger, this grief, we know, we feel those things simultaneously in those moments, don't we? We say things like, how can that happen? That shouldn't happen. And there's something of an anger that's there. And then simultaneously we go, it's so sad, right? Both of those things are side by side in our hearts. Our emotional lives are not clean, they're complex, and emotions run upon us multiple at a time. And that's what's happening here with this provocation. He's indignant that this happening. He's grieving. Think about it. He's indignant when he looks at the holiness of God and the worship that he deserves. But he's broken when he looks at the lostness of the people. And he stares into their eyes, and he realizes that they have no hope. And they're seeking in a false hope. To gain the life that they think that they want and need. Those are side by side. Now, if you're experiencing those emotions in a moment regarding a culture, regarding an event, regarding a circumstance or a person that the Lord has put in your life, there's a great, there's a great high quality that there's a third thing that you're feeling and it's actually foundational to anger and to the sadness. You know what that is? It's love. 
It's compassion. In such a moment as is described here in the text, anger and sadness are the manifestations of the love and the compassion that Paul has. The love for God and the compassion for his people. If you think about it, anger and grief happen because we care. Because we care. Because we love. So why did Jesus get angry at the temple with regards to the money changers? Because he wanted to see the glory of God in the worship of his people. He wanted to see their joy in the salvation that God had wrought. Why did he cry at the death of Lazarus? Likely because of the lack of faith that was displayed, but also the devastating reality of death that was registering upon him in a way that maybe doesn't register at other places in the text of Scripture. It was because he cared that he felt those things. How do we know this? Listen to Mark 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why did he have compassion on them? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, anger without compassion is destructive and spawns culture war. Anger without sense of justice, without compassion. <laughs> it's, it spawns a kind of culture war mentality. We're going to fight them. We're going to beat them. We'll do whatever it takes to be able to do it. But grief with no compassion creates despair. It's sad. There's nothing we can do. There's no hope. Just give up. Many of us, as we look out at the culture, we feel one or the other. Maybe without the missing ingredient of love. Without the missing ingredient of compassion. Righteousness and anger, tethered as it should be to compassion, is a powerful means for change because it's there where we actually find the reality of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Listen, friends, the gospel is an expression of anger, grief, and love. That's what it is. That's what it is. God's anger over sin and injustice and the reality of the robbing of his glory that is rightfully his is something that we see from cover to cover in the Bible. We're told in Romans chapter 2 that because of our stubbornness and the unrepentance of our heart, we are storing up wrath for the day of judgment and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God will come where he will render to each person according to their deeds. The recognition of our sinfulness and the injustice that is happening all across the world is something that God has righteous anger over. But we're also told simultaneously that he grieves over it. Think of the story of Noah where God sees the wickedness of the people. We're told that his anger is kindled, but then this is how it's described. The Lord was sorry that he made man and he grieved in his heart. Psalm 78, 40. How often they rebel against me in the wilderness and has grieved me in the desert. Let me just appeal real briefly to parents in the room or anyone who's had a disciple in the room. Don't they often anger you and grieve you simultaneously, like 30 seconds apart? 
You get angry, and then you're sad, and then you're sad, and then you get angry, and then... It's because the reality of those two expressions means that you care. There's something underneath that must be deeper, and it actually must be brought with greater clarity. Because in that anger and grief, they come together in the love of what it is that God has given to us in the cross. You see, the cross is an expression of God's anger, the solution to God's grief, and the expression of God's love. Okay? That's what it is. For in the cross, God is pouring out his wrath on sin. For all of those who are his people, he's pouring it out on the Lord Jesus Christ. All the grief, all the anger is being satisfied as the Lord Jesus Christ takes it all fully upon himself for his people. And he did it not because he was mad in the uncontrollable sense of the word. He did it out of an act of love. He did it out of an act of love. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let me pat and pat gave. He sent him to the cross and he was brutally killed. He had all of his wrath pour out upon his own son. All of his grief ultimately satisfied in his own son. Why? Because he loved you. You see, there has been a provocation in the heart of God. He's been provoked from before the foundation of the world to receive you as his bride. And he knows that if he pours his anger out upon you, it will utterly destroy you. And he doesn't give up in grief and walk in the opposite direction. Instead, he gives his own son as a substitute for you. And he lets his righteousness be poured out fully and completely on the cross. He lets his grief be completely satisfied in the solace that only Jesus can give as he expresses his full and unequivocal love for you to draw you into his presence. Now listen, friends, if you have the experience of that kind of love happening in you, you know what begins to happen? That kind of love begins to emanate out from you. You begin to become a person who can experience righteous indignation, heart-wrenching grief, tethered as it is to deep love. And so you don't go uncontrollably angry without compassion or grief without compassion utterly despairing. But you have a strong place in which you can sit in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ knowing that he will bring all things to right and he will wipe every tear from every face for those who know him and are called according to his purpose. And you have confidence as a believer, to say, I want to see the world that is trying to find this hope in every single idol. I want to see the world come to know a God who gives this kind of stability, this kind of strength, this kind of courage, this kind of power. Friends, as we think about becoming disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in a more committed way in our own culture, it's going to require um, more observation on our parts more attentiveness to what we're letting in, what we're being influenced by, what it's saying, what it means. We're going to need to learn the discipline of tracing and identifying the idols of our culture in order to speak the same idols that may be vying for our own hearts. And we're going to have to learn to compellingly, I think, like the Apostle Paul in this text, begin to connect these realities with the gospel so that people can see that what they really want is not found in the things they're pursuing. But they're found in Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the great treasure 
for which we have all been made. So I ask you, submit yourself to these disciplines. Don't check your head at the door. Give yourself over to a mind of discipleship. It will be in to give shape to a communication of power in the gospel. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we ask that you would equip us in the Holy Spirit. For he alone can give the fullness of understanding and skill. And so we submit to him in it. But Lord, hear our hearts and our need and our petition. Meet us where we are. That we might bless you and honor you in the culture that's before us. Raise up in our hearts a provocation. And don't bed it back down until we answer it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.